Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in obedience of angels, in the service of the archangels, in hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in prayers of patriarchs, in predictions of prophets, in preachings of apostles, in faiths of confessors, in innocence of holy virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, brilliance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to secure me, against snares of devils, against temptations of vices, against inclinations of nature, against everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and anear, alone and in a crowd. I summon today all these powers between me and these evils, against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and my soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of heathenry, against false laws of heretics, against crafts of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that endangers man's body and soul, Christ to protect me today, against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come abundance of reward, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ in breadth, Christ in length, Christ in height, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Christ. May thy salvation, O Lord, be ever with us. That was the cry of the deer, the Lorica of St. Patrick, a prayer attributed to St. Patrick 
but most likely written a century later than the man himself, but a true and authentic witness to the form of Christianity that he inaugurated on the Emerald Isle. I am joined once again by Father Hayden to discuss the life of St. Patrick and the Celtic shape of Christianity that emerged from his ministry and witness. Hayden, I don't know where to go after that, but welcome back. Maybe just maybe podcast. just read it again, you know. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> that was metal. Yeah. I mean, it you and I are are compelled by this person for a variety of reasons, but but especially by this form of Christianity. Yeah. Um yeah. in in a, approaching the subject, I think what we should do is sketch a little bit of his life. Um, we have a couple resources, primarily his own confession, his own uh, written work. He wrote two things that we have. Um, one was a letter to um, a Roman general, a soldier, who had enslaved uh, people he had ministered to in Ireland and had been sort of abducted back by the British soldiers uh, in Roman Britain. Um, so this sort of you know, angry letter rebuking him for, for enslaving Christian brothers and sisters. Um, and then we have this confession, uh, his, his, his biography in a way, his spiritual biography written uh, toward the end of his life. Um, what we know of him comes from these things and then from what we're able to sort of sketch from later sources as well. It seems that we can fix his dates and we got to do circa here, um, but we're in the 5th century. Uh, we're in the, maybe 420 is the closest I've heard uh, Peter Brown, a historian out of Princeton, settle. Uh, 420, he says, to 490 is roughly sort of the term of his life. Uh, now, the 5th century puts us in an incredible moment because Patrick is not himself Irish. He is a Roman Briton, um, and he lives probably pretty close to the north of England, around about Hadrian's Wall, if folks know where that boundary line is. Um, and yet he's alive as a Roman Briton in the 5th century, and if anybody knows a little bit of their Roman history, it's not the best century for the Roman Empire. It's the time in which the, the barbarians, the, the Goths, the Visigoths, um, any number of, of others from what we would describe as sort of broadly Europe, um, are beginning to uh, have their way with, with the western side of the empire. Um, 410, we have uh, the invasion basically of Rome itself. Um, it's going to be 476 in which sort of we'll put the, the final death knell on Rome in the West as the end or the decline and fall officially of the Roman Empire. The 5th century and Patrick's life itself is almost exactly contemporary with Attila the Hun. Uh, and the Hun, of course, invasion is a large reason for even the barbarian tribes moving into Rome proper and stirring up so much of these things. But Patrick himself, a Roman Briton in the north of England, uh, grandfather was a priest, uh, father was a deacon in the church, uh, and yet at the turning point in his early life, uh, there are invaders from Ireland. Uh, broadly, these people are called Scots or Scotsmen at the time. Uh, we would think of Irish, Scots, and Welsh um, kind of being uh, the Celtic thing, the Celtic tribes, etc. Um, but these invaders from Ireland, these sort of pirate-like raiders, um, come in and attack the village he lives in, carry him off and enslave him along with thousands of others. Um, but Patrick 
experiences this incredible transformation of his life at the age of 16. And this is extraordinary, not just as one who teaches uh, teenagers, but um, it's an incredible thing to think of your whole life changing at that moment when it's precisely the moment in which you're looking forward to and hoping and planning so much of life. So Patrick is taken back to or taken to Ireland and into the west of Ireland, uh, probably County Mayo, which is a place where I spent a better part of a, a year and a half. And he is, he is made to be a shepherd uh, for about six years in pretty bleak and isolated conditions. But according to his confession, it's during this time that he learns to pray. He learns to have a faith that is his own precisely because of the desperate circumstances. The way he talks about his young life, maybe because he's so familiar with the church, is that he was not very good at listening to his priest. <laughs> so I think we can probably all identify with different seasons of our life <laughs> uh, in which that was the case. Um, but suddenly at 16, to be alone, unable to speak the language most likely of his captors, um, and, and to be made to, to sort of, I mean, the most isolated of conditions, a shepherd, right, already, but in the most sort of literally the edge of the edge of the world, right? For, for this era of time, Ireland is the end of the world. That's, that's where we are. And it is outside of the Roman Empire. It's beyond the reach of the empire. It's beyond the reach of these things. And so these people are, are the quintessential uh, descriptor for the barbarian as far as the world is concerned. Patrick is enslaved there for six years when he receives um, a dream, not, not the last dream he'll receive, but a dream in which an angel uh, appears to him and tells him the Lord um, has made a way for him to escape and that it's his time to escape. And so he, he does. His escape is fraught. Um, he, he escapes onto a ship. The ship is shipwrecked. He doesn't get back to, to England for, it seems, years. Um, at certain points, he's very close to starvation. And so his escape is not some whisked away, sort of magical, easy thing. Um, it almost kills him uh, on several occasions, it seems. Um, he eventually is able to get back home. And, and by that point, because of his enslavement, because of this isolation, because of this incredible experience, he has developed a trust in and love for the Lord that is life-changing, profound, his own, and not something he'll ever turn back from. And so now he's feeling called into ministries, feeling called to learn more about these things he wants to study. It's not totally clear if he actually makes it to the continent where he would have got his sort of official training, um, but he is eventually made a bishop. He is eventually uh, given the ordination of that official office, and so he is obviously trained, and he is obviously recognized um, by at least uh, some will come to regret it because they don't necessarily think the Irish should be saved um, and that this mission he ends up on is, is, is maybe a fool's errand. Um, but he is, he is, he is uh, consecrated and he is ordained for, for the ministry. Now, again, why would he ever return to the place in which he had been enslaved? It, it seems, according to his confession, that he has another dream, incredibly vivid dream in which a man appears to him with a letter, maybe a series of letters, and the letters are labeled the voices of the Irish or the voice of the Irish. And in those letters, as he begins to read them in his dream, the people in Ireland are calling out to him to come and walk amongst them in Ireland once more. 
and in his dream he cannot finish the letter so sort of immediate and compelling and overwhelming i would imagine um you know maybe even traumatic is is this call back to the place that you had escaped from um, but he takes it as the very words of the Lord. And very much like Paul, with the Macedonian man calling him uh, to a place he had not planned to go, uh, but which seems to be the urgent direction of the Lord, he eventually makes his way back to Ireland. Um, his ministry there is the stuff of so many sort of extant legends, um, but even his own descriptions of his life and ministry in Ireland is just wild. Um, this is Druidical Ireland. This is a wild place. This is a deep, dark place. I mean, there's there's no accident that um, the 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 prayer that I started with is ascribed to him because, of course, you would be protected from wizards, of course, because there they're around. Real, there are wizards. Because yeah. there are wizards, and there are things that that people are being faced with. There's just there's nothing. Um, buffering you from the very darkest and uh, most sort of terrifying spiritual realities, um, as well as the, this bright hope that he has. So, so his own descriptions of how often he is sort of in danger for his life, how how often, in fact, he's in prison on at least one, maybe more than one occasion um, for trying to bring the gospel to a land that itself is incredibly tribal, uh, around upwards of 150 high chieftain kings dividing up only uh, 500,000 people. I mean, an incredibly sort of fraught um, warrior tribal culture um, whose spirituality is a very dark uh, druidical observance, um, very wild place, uh, very thin, as they would later describe, the barrier between the spiritual world and their world, very thin in that in that area. Peter Brown has described what he did there and the, the sort of phenomenon of Irish Christianity or Celtic Christianity as the very first uh, moment in the history of Christendom in which the church grew in the third world, um, because it is it is quite literally the end of the world, and it is outside of the reach of the Roman Empire. It's outside of the reach of quote-unquote civilization in this way, and so it becomes the first sort of church of the third world. Um, and this is why it was even such a fraught thing for bishops on the continent and other people um, you know, in sort of the Roman Christian environment because these people were considered to be um, subhuman and considered to be so wild, so animalistic, so dangerous, so violent um, that the mission over there, they began to assume maybe the worst of his motives. Oh, he's trying to be something. He's trying to make something. He's trying to draw attention to himself. And he's like, I mean, very Pauline. He's like regularly trying to defend, God called me to be a bishop. Like I, like I was ordained because he called me to this. I'm not trying to do this to be something or to draw attention to myself. Um, but that's how strange it was for him to even minister um, to these people. Now, his success is largely something he begins to witness in his own lifetime, but becomes the success of a century, um, becomes the success in which Irish or Celtic Christianity is going to be the path by which the world is re-evangelized in the West. I mean, it becomes the, the total pivot point 
in which missionaries are formed, in which monasteries emerge in this incredible way where it's called the land of saints and scholars, right? I mean, everything that was the barbarian, everything that was so uh, sort of derided about his ministry to these people, unfit people, um, eventually within a century or two, um, certainly by the, by the high Middle Ages, becomes known as this place of profound scholarship and the place that the missionaries came from that saved us <laughs> and brought Christianity back to the Western world. Um, and so it's an, just an incredible story. It's been written about you know, a variety of different ways, some more sensational than others, but even what we can determine to be sort of the actual facts on the ground themselves are sensational because it was clearly a work of God and clearly a work of the Spirit um, to bring the gospel to this place and this wild country. Um, Patrick's life is one that, again, has been co-opted and become <laughs> something comical, something that most people don't know anything about anymore. Um, and yet you and I wanted to talk about him, not just because the feast uh, of St. Patrick is, is coming soon and will be just in time for people to hear this, um, but because something happened there with the gospel and with a form of Christianity that may have more than a romantic or a sensational appeal for us in our time. Um, so I just did a lot of talking. <laughs> um, is there anything about this life that you want to drill down in or do you, how do you want to go from here? Um, do we want to think through um, any particular episode in this story? Um, or maybe you could tell me maybe how you connected with mm. this story or how you became interested. Cause in my own experience, it was like, it was romantic. Like I'm, you know, largely Irish. My family, you know, is, is mostly Irish. And it was like, Oh, what a wild. And you know, they have the best looking crosses and <laughs> you know, like it was very, you know, like, I don't know, like shallow, but romantic shallow like oh what an exciting it was cool it was you know it always had this appeal to me when I was younger for fairly superficial reasons I'm sure um, but something's different now where it, it has a depth and a unique shape to it that I, I think may be a lifeline for us yeah. I mean there are so many directions you could go with with Patrick himself or or, just, or the kind of spirituality that his his ministry and his evangelistic ministry um, and his pastoral work there, um, you know, birthed. Um, I, you know, to start with the guy himself, uh, you know, I think one of the one of the things that always stands out to me about his story is 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 that you know it he as a figure as a bishop as a and as the sort of father of a spirit of a sort of a spiritual tradition. Is something that much of the rest of the of the Christian West doesn't know what to do with most of the time, um, because a lot of, of of the moves he makes um, embody a kind of a kind of single-minded donation of one's life for the purposes of Christ that continues to uh, vocalize a challenge to the kind of more comfy. Christianity that 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 tends that is a tendency in the kind of modern Christian West of like of Northern Europe and of and of America, 
Uh, and so I think that's that's what kind of has stood up to me as I was thinking about this coming, uh, preparing for today and thinking about some of these things is that there's there's never been a time when the when Irish Christianity, um, Celtic Christianity more broadly, has not been something that the rest of the of, of, of the Christian West hasn't had a lot of like skepticism towards a lot of the time, um, but also that hasn't exerted a, a, a pretty continuous, and I would argue even mostly positive challenge to the other, the, the, to the tendencies of the more kind of continental and then sort of new world uh, uh, like Christianity. I think uh, that that's the thing I'd like maybe to drill into is like, like the, the, the spirit, the spiritual tradition that evolved, that emerges from the pattern of that life. Because his life really becomes a kind of motif, a kind mm-hmm. of pattern for how to live mm-hmm. as a Christian, how to conduct oneself as a Christian. That really you see repeated in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the emphases of Celtic Christianity. Um, but then, as a tradi- as a spiritual movement becomes, uh, uh, those those emphases prove in every age very important sort of um, dialogue uh, voices, uh, voices of di- to dialogue with the continental West and, and with the movements that came out of that, um, both in the, you know, the, the ancient and sort of the, the, in the fall of Rome, the Middle Ages, the Reformation especially, um, and then in the settling of Christianity in the New World. I mean, all of these, uh, the Irish played really important roles in, and I think uh, said things that helpfully and 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 poignantly challenged what would have been otherwise just sort of taken for granted tendencies in the Christian West. For the reasons that it always seems so romantic, mm-hmm. um, you know, the even in in the the prayer, um, this attendance to the the landscape, um, this attendance to the natural world. Uh, again, just the thinning of a barrier, right, yeah. between so many of our um, neat categories. Whether whether those categories are uh, Roman Empire, structural, hierarchical, yeah. um, ordered, right? Uh, soldiers here, soldiers there, right? All yeah, these legions, legions and, and centurions, yeah. and reporting to this, and yeah. stationed here and stationed there. It's not um, the not the round table. No, yeah, and and that's, that, and that it's I, the circle. It's, it's this borderland, it's so quite literally this borderland, this wild place in which, you know, the natural world is, is, a, is a figure of life mm-hmm. that is not being sort of tamed. And so it's being interacted with in a way that is alive with spiritual significance. It's like we sort of try to kind of claw our way back to a sacramental view of, of reality or of nature. Um, there isn't an option, you know, in, in, in this edge of the world place. This is just the way it is, right? It, of course, everything is charged with spirit, right. right? Whatever that may be, there may be many dark spirits, right? They almost, need to be almost, guarded against, right? And, yeah. and, and so it is in the scripture, right? Um, you know, one of the disconcerting things about reading the Gospels for many people is the frequent casualness with which demons are mentioned, you know, as, oh, people, Taken for granted. people bring out those who have fever and demons, right? Uh, someone has is suffering with the flu, and and this person has a demon. Yeah. You know, it's like right there with any normal ailment of life is spiritual sickness, is spiritual, um, you know, the presence mm-hmm. of other of other spirits, right? And so there is a, yeah, it's impolite, it's it's um, uh, maybe unstructured, but there is a frankness about the spirituality of the world yeah. that is is true of the druidical moment right um right. in a way 
um, but then but then is engaged with and not not evangelized to um, to secularize, right? Not right. like the tendency of most of Western Christianity was to towards something like the Enlightenment moment, where we can explain enough of the world in more mechanical terms right. that we can kind of tamp it down and, and bring it under the control of of our rationality or how we understand it. We're not comfortable staying in a, a, a submissive you know, posture before the world, right? We need to find ways, the Baconian project of taming nature, right? Um, right. And, and bringing it under control through experiment and but whatever. That, that kind of gets at the, I think, you know, a, a, a spiritual tendency that again, stands in contrast with what I think would be the emphasis of Celtic Christianity. So you know the Celts, for as you know, they their their the spirituality of that. Let's talk about like maybe the natural spirituality yeah. of the Celts. That you know, by a lot of of sort of especially continental historians, um, uh, sort of the like speaking from the perspectives of Rome or from like or, or from sort of uh, the or from the like the continental Reformation, or they they look on the Irish uh, kind of Christianity. As a, a, a with with suspicion and but you know I think you know Caston maybe in a more positive light um, the native kind of Celtic impulse was to was to see the nearness of things um, in a way that the that the rest of the West often had a lot of trouble doing especially in the Roman West um, you know, I think you you started to hint at it I think you know a, a, the Patrick's life if we would take that take it as like our sort of anchor point Patrick's life you could you could you know, describe it many ways, but one of the things is is that he he does what some spiritual writers have called he pillaged his own misery for treasure. Hmm. Um, he he went back into the heart of his own nightmare. What you know in the in the kind of contemporary West, like in this in the time we're living in right now, to say to someone, actually, the Lord is calling you to go back to the heart of that traumatic experience you you experienced, and that is where the your work as a as a saint will begin. Hmm. Um, th- that's an unthinkable thing to say to anybody right now, because you know we we we're, we're sort of a more in in our in our some in our sometimes good impulses to be more trauma informed. We also um, see these you know the creation of spaces that are just untouchable, like we we can't go back into those things. And surely God would never want us to have to confront again the thing we're afraid we're afraid of or the thing that hurt us at some point. And it may be that that's the very case. That's been the case for a lot of people in in Christian history. That's one thing, but I think uh, what it does, what it, what we see there is that it, you know, as we as he goes into the heart of that of that that disruption, that trauma, that 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 difficult season of his life, and returns to it freely, not having to, but doing so as a gift of his own life, returning to it, he returns with a kind of freedom that allows him to see him even in the midst of something that like an outsider would see as like just like sort of like a mat one-dimensional darkness, he starts being able to see the seeds of the Logos there. He starts being able to see the seeds of truth that uh, can be cultivated into, into sort of great uh, oak trees, you know, to use a popular Irish image, right? The great oak trees that become these sort of pillar um, emphases of spirituality that that then anchor our anchor points for the rest of the West. Well, in it, when it gets unhinged in, in different in many different seasons. So taking that as a kind of pattern, Patrick's own life being like, all right, I'm going to enter back into this thing, and then I can perceive in what it would otherwise have been just a sort of superficial darkness, I can actually see um, that there's something very important here 
that needs to be brought into the fold of of of, of Christianity that that Christianity needs to go and marry itself to in order for for the practice of the faith to remain healthy in the West. And I think so so hone in on one of the specifics of that that you highlighted. Um, in Celtic spirituality, you have an almost scandalous sense of nearness of the world of spirit and the world of matter. This is something that at times, uh, that a few different pivotal times, scandalizes the rest of the West. Um, and we have to remember, you know, that around the time that this is all happening, when Rome is starting to fall, that's when you have like the sort of the ascendancy of like, of at that day, their form of Gnosticism, which was the Manichaean cult that uh, Augustine had been, you know, like St. Augustine of Hippo had been wrapped up in, he had been a member of for a while. And but was part of a larger um, s- sort of spiritual sickness that pervades the whole history of the West, of seeing the world of spirit and the world of matter as far apart, and as one as being as one as being at times utterly evil, at other times very suspicious, uh, and the and the world of spirit being the only thing worth considering. The, and the Celts they never really had that problem. They never really fell into Manichaeism. They never really fell into a significant kind of Gnosticism. They were almost immune to it. It mm. seemed like, and they and and on the you know, and while at times they may have over-identified the world of spirit with the world of matter, at at the same point they always proved a helpful counterpoint to what would have otherwise been the tendency of the West to rip apart the world to create a radically two-story universe. Mm-hmm. And the Celts believed, I think properly, and I think as the scriptures do, in a one-story universe, where all of these things really do. They're different kinds of things, different natures of things, but they all live in the same cosmos mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, a deep discomfort to our kind of, to any sort of rationalizing, to any sort of secularizing, to any sort of uh, enlightenment mechanizing of the world, to a Gnostic tendency. All of these things are deeply challenged. And that's maybe why everyone hates Irish spirituality for a, such a long <laughs> time. It's like they, they, they speak against all those other sort of fragmentary ways we try to fragment the world and yeah. fragment the cosmos. Questions, uh, the, the, the narrative of progress and, and, and right. progress becomes a form of, uh, of, of deep confusion. Right. Um, and yet we've, we've built a story that we are advancing and are advanced and, right. and, and, and we, that Christians have advanced as well. Absolutely. In the West. Right. Yeah. And, and that, and so, okay. So the, yeah, the nearness of, of these things, the, the wildness of these things. And then what it does it, it, as far as one's relationship with the Lord is it there's a almost like a sustained desperateness about your reliance on and dependence on the Lord Himself because structures or power or or uh, rational divisions are not going to be uh, sort of safe places to hide or even to rest. You you are your sort of your nearness to your need right is then always in play. Because there is not a lot of artificial comforts or or boundaries right. um, between you and the enemy of your soul, uh, between you and your your worst impulses, right? Between you know the the violence of of this sort of fifth and sixth century Celtic world um, is also what what gives rise to the the, the monasteries uh, and the movement to say. This is a, a a dangerous and dark thing we're 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 engaging in this constant tribal warfare, um, 
And yet we have this gospel that has come in that is that is strong, but it's not strong in the way that I want to be strong as the new high right. king. It's strong because there is a high king and it's not me. And and so like this the challenge of the lordship of Christ as a greater strength than the contest of kings or tribes um, becomes one of the ways in which this sort of forces the issue, right? It, it, it doesn't leave a lot of quarter for, for resting in the wrong place. No. And so it, it keeps them exposed to the wrongness of the place that they continually sort of fight for and the power they want to accrue to themselves. And then suddenly there's this movement in which a lot of these warrior kings or those who had hopes to be high kings um, suddenly abandon their lives um, to, to exile, uh, to become people who pray and people who wander, deliberately wander um, by being led by the Spirit in these strange and unusual and, and maybe unregulated ways. Um, because they are they're doing something like the desert fathers and mothers did when when Rome becomes Christianized and Rome and its power becomes this the, the combination of the sort of the decadent the violent and the Christian and so it you know even after Patrick right the fact that the gospel is then seeded into this place where it continually has to confront um, the violence and, and the nature of, of this sort of tribal space um, it 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 yields into something. Something has to be done. There's this right. impossible not to be confronted by, you know, nature of things. And so there's no accident that this incredible monastic sort of like thing happens. This almost the green desert, right? There, there isn't a, there isn't an Egyptian desert nearby. Um, so they're gonna escape deeper into the wild lands or to of the, the islands, west. Yeah, right? Or to the, yeah, it, or to it, the other, yeah, or to yeah, these more obscure sort of locations. In, in the smallest of that world, but as a way of saying, okay, I have to confront the reality of, of, of what Christ is with the reality of what our lives actually are. And, and these things are impossibly in, in, in contention with one another. There's no easy alliance there. And, it, and so it, it erupts in this monastic kind of thing, this you know, movement or uh, moment. And precisely, I think, because there are not separations like, you know, all the difficult uglinesses, um, you know, we talked uh, previously about what Lent is meant to do to the Christian heart and life to surface things, right? Um, that we just have so much ability and acumen at burying right. or normalizing or, or, or rationalizing or justifying. Um, so it does strike me that the wildness of that, the desperateness of that, the, the nearness of all the, the parts of reality um, also forces decision, forces um, dramatic things to happen because life itself is dramatic. Sin is dramatic. So grace and, and, and resurrection and rescue must be even more dramatic. It's like we take Jesus seriously when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. It is erupting here right. now. Uh, and it has demands on us. And that's that's the heart of, that's maybe why, you know, Celtic spirituality became immediately monastic. Because at the heart of monasticism is that, that, that scriptural notion of purity of heart, which just means an undivided heart, a wholeness of heart in the thing that is done, right? Uh, and so like there's a there's a one there's a oneness to that yeah. right like yeah you are you are you are one person you are a whole person in that and you are single-mindedly and single-heartedly devoted 
Um, and, you know, again, it challenges, I think, the rest of the Christian West, which had at that time and continues to have in all subsequent generations a, a, a complacency with compromise, with having a divided heart. We say like, oh, yeah, like Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. But like, you know, like he's got to understand that, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of competing interests in our lives. Right. It's like maybe not. Mm. The Irish would say, maybe not. Maybe not. You know, maybe not. Maybe actually purity of heart. You know, and they may and they go so far as to like you know overstrain that at at times, but at the same time, it's an important voice uh, to to speak into that. But I think, you know, I I think that's you were talking about those tendencies, those impulses, right? That's the difference, though. I think where you see in how Patrick Christianizes Ireland uh, by all and based on the evidence of the actual tradition that the pastoral tradition that develops after his ministry, you see that. Patrick's evangelization of Ireland wasn't, like many subsequent attempts to evangelize Ireland, a suppressive kind of evangelization. He walks back into the heart of his own nightmare as a free gift of his own life, out of love for Christ and progressively out of love for the people, and then finds there that that's the sort of native tendencies. And then rather than trying to crush them out of existence, draws them out to their proper end, which then pulls them out of the distortion that they would have by being overly compressed by these sort of short-term goals of like becoming the high king or crushing our rival tribe or, or something like that. And when we we start to see Christ the high king and and like and the warrior as as the liegeman of Christ, right? And the and the and the sort of the monk uh, whose single-minded devotion to being in place with a whole heart that is undivided in devotion to attending God and attentive, uh, an attentive um, work among the people. This was what the Druid always dreamed of being. Was actually, and this is why, like the Druid, almost disappears with the advent of the of the Irish monk. Mm-hmm. The Irish monk is like, oh, that's what we were trying to do all this time and didn't ever get to. And really, that that kind of uh, that kind of attentive charity that Patrick seemed to have in his evangelization, and that was repeated in many of the great sort of formative spiritual fathers and mothers of Ireland, you see you see that, that very same spirit. It's the, but then uh, continually it's having to contend with the impulse of the rest of the Christian West, which always comes in as like, whoa, these guys like trees too much. Like, let's crush <laughs> that, you know? Like, let's, let's get rid of that. Whoa, they, they, there's yeah. a realism yeah. that everyone else finds either puerile and like, and like, and ju- and juvenile yeah. and, and, and like, ugh, like these people are still a bunch of tree worshipers because mm-hmm. they believe that like, you know, there are, there are spirits everywhere. Um, and, but it, it really, what it is, is it's, it's them failing to confront in themselves how deeply and, and early on in, in the Christian West history, they became really deeply secularized and right. how they continue to be to this very day. That's a really important point. How early the Christian church is secularized in the West. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, if you're not sure about that, just seeing, you know, literally before, you know, Constantine's conversion, uh, if we can call it that, some of my students would debate <laughs> uh, the merits of that conversion. But um, before that, you have, you know, St. Anthony going to the desert. I mean, you, you have the monastic movement starting before it's even sort of the Christian empire. Right. Um, and, and the fact that, in the fifth century, when Patrick is is carrying out this ministry, the fact that he is so regularly ridiculed 
for exactly what you just said, for, for not Romanizing Ireland, right. right? Because the idea, and this should sound very familiar to anybody who knows a little bit about American history, the idea is you have to civilize the savage yep. in order to save them, right? right? That you have to make them like us, which is in this case, Romanize, um, Roman Britain or whatever um, is your example. So they need to be made people of the empire and then they can be made Christian people of the empire. You have to civilize them, you have to make them Roman, and then you can make them Christian. And Patrick clearly is convinced on the ground, exactly what you said, that the opposite is the case. That instead, it's tapping into the very goods that were perverted in the desire, in their understanding, that and because and he was literally accused of, of going native, of becoming like them, yeah. and losing, you know, this sort of more, you know, right, his Roman of, and sophistication, this yeah. Roman sophistication, this civilized Christian form, and yet again, he wouldn't have known it quite in his life exactly what was going to happen with the, the the fall, quote unquote, of the of the Roman West. Looking back now, it's more than prescient, right? It's 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 astonishing that these things are happening all at once. That they are ridiculing him for not making of these people a falling and collapsing empire, right. like a fallen and collapsing civilization, like the the that all just being right at the surface. You know, looking back at this moment of. The- and, What's and happening? The right? irony of which being, you know, that that ideal that was like, why aren't you making them into into something more like us? Is like a minute later, a minute that whole later. way of life collapsed. Yeah, and 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 it felt like you know, it felt like a bunch of dominoes. You yeah. know, it, and and the whole European, like the continental West, was was laid in was sort of laid in ruins. That was the thing we were we were saying. Like you should turn them into more like us, only to reveal the poverty and the impermanence of right. that of that whole way of life. Right. So Celtic Christianity has a few sort of moments or expressions or ideas that you and I think might be particularly uh, potent in in the best sense, Um, helpful. The overarching one I'm sure everyone can hear at this point is we're pretty convinced that there is something here for us because this is the the first, as Peter Brown argues at least, um, expression of Christianity outside of power outside of the center of power in the Roman Empire, um, that this is something different happening here, a form of vibrant and vital form of Christianity that doesn't disappear in a generation, um, that persists and is able to create a monastic and then a missionary movement and literally begin to re-evangelize the Western world after the fall of Rome when Christianity does, in fact, decline and disappear in many places. Um, But precisely that strength being because it's sort of beyond the reach of of power. It's not seated somewhere in the sphere of human power. Um, And so it becomes like legendary, right? It's like hard to even describe, well, how or when. And so we'll try to come up with ways of sort of the hagiography of, of these people's lives because we don't know where to fix the center. We don't know where to put it because they didn't start this new structural power, you know, that we could recognize and say, okay, is, you know, this institutional thing happened. And, um, and so, so for you and I looking at maybe a, a, you know, a post-Christian West, um, a hyper-secular West, maybe even a post-evangelical American space in which sort of Christian power has sort of come to bear uh, a lot of rotten fruit, um, at least as it's witness to the world that needs to know uh, its savior. Um, 
do you think there is something more than just romantic there mm-hmm. um, in a form of Christianity that that did not require um, human power to build it, sustain it, maintain it, spread it? Um, do you think we can tap into something more precise than to just say, man, they loved trees and they believe God <laughs> loved trees too. No, right? yeah, like, th- like, there is. Because there has to be, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're not a Roman Catholic, you're, no. a, you're Anglo-Catholic, yeah. right? You, you are um, very much from and a part of yeah, this no, this, spirit. This Celtic, this Celtic Christianity is, a, is, a, is, a, is interwoven inextricably into the, the spiritual tradition of the, of the sort of the ancient Anglican world, which, which we're, we, you know, we profess continuity with. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, in our time, it, because I think one of the dangers or the people get so nervous about Celtic mm-hmm. Christianity is it feels like private individuals wanting to be spiritual legendary, yeah. right? Like wanting to, you know, be like this or do these radical things that, you know, Cuthbert or, or <laughs> right. you know, or, or Patrick or Brendan, whoever. Yeah. 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 Um, because the stories are so dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it can have a, an appeal that people are nervous about it having this kind of appeal. Um, but is there, are there things in this tradition, because it is a tradition right? and, and it has a shape, um, are there things in this that we could draw on that are not just appealing to sort of the vanity of a, a new kind of spiritual performance or? Yeah. Oh, I, I, de- I definitely think so. Um, you know, th- you're right to highlight that as the warning at the beginning of, of exploring any spiritual tradition is that there is an integrity to, to spiritual traditions that, that organically develop um, as, as movements of the Holy Spirit in the church's history. Um, that have to be respected. That integrity has to be respected. Um, it, you know, we are ba- we are sort of liable to a kind of buffet Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the more awareness we get of these diverse traditions and their and their different defining practices, it's like, well, I'm going to go along, and it's kind of like. You know, it's like, well, I'm going to do bar today and then yoga tomorrow and then, you know, some some Tai Chi on Wednesday. It's sort of we 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 have a, a liability. And I do think that there is a kind of uh, unhealthy and toxic appropriation of these things that goes along and says, oh, well, I'm going to do this sort of practice here from Celtic spirituality. And then I'm going to go say the, you know, do the do like the, the rope prayer of the Orthodox. And then I'm going to say the rosary on this day. And there's that kind of a thing that misses, I think, what is helpful in a tradition, which is that um, it is a world into which you enter and submit, um, which which immediately puts you in a posture of powerlessness. It is not a kind of acquiring of of spiritual either um, sort of tchotchkes or spiritual um, tokens that together um, you know make up or sort of a way you sort of self-identify to the rest of, of Christendom as an individual thing. Um, traditions are by definition communal. And traditions are, by being communal, they involve a rule of life that the community assents to, and that each individual is subject to. And when that doesn't, when that when that goes awry, that's when we start getting into that kind of like egotistical buffet Christianity. So I would warn everybody against that first of all. Um, this the so be, beyond that though, yeah, no, there are some I think precise emphases in Celtic spirituality that really are necessary for us to retrieve. Um, that it was always necessary to, as Western Christians, to to have as, as like like that bother us, uh, that that provoke us. One is um, one we've already talked about the nearness of things. We definitely I think have a tendency to see 
the world of spirit as the like seeing ourselves in a kind of cosmic duplex with God and all the spiritual stuff in the nicer penthouse upstairs mm-hmm. and all the rest of the stuff with us down here. And occasionally God will walk downstairs and tell us what for, and then he'll go back <laughs> upstairs. Um, and then, you know, eventually we get to go and, and have a room upstairs with him. And that's, that's definitely not how the scriptures envision themselves. Um, they, they never spell this out in, in like sort of a, a concrete terms because it's just taken for granted. It's the atmosphere in which they take place. It's the whole mindset without which the scriptures themselves don't make sense anymore. And, and really, we have to retrieve that. But beyond that, I think in Celtic spirituality, you have a couple of emphases that are helpful for us. One is they are they have a high emphasis on the verbal, mm. um, on storytelling, um, and being reminded continually of who we are as a people. Um, modern Christians tend to be forgetful Christians and to think that their generation is the sum total of what has been and what will be. So the the importance of the verbal uh, is is you know it re- again restores to us I think uh, back to I think the milieu that the scriptures envision for themselves is is by you know when when you know like when Paul the apostle Paul tells people to comfort one another with these words mm. uh, in speaking about the resurrection. Uh, you know, I think that we, we take, you know, it's like, he's not envisioning us sort of like copying, you know, like, like handing someone a piece of paper and saying, you know, like, like as a kind of like a, a consolation card or something like that. It, it's, it's a, um, the, there's a, there's a, there's something about the spoken word or words spoken between people or words spoken in common among a people that has a power to bind and has a power to sort of br- br- make of one mind. This is like as an Ang- speaking as an Anglican, you know, this is the heart of what we call common prayer. Um, it is we we are we are joining our voices. Common prayer, common speech is the only way that many voices can speak as one voice. Is if they already if everyone knows what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you know you you saw in like native Celtic spirituality prior to Christianity, the bard is the figure that looms large in this aspect of society. Right, you have the warrior, the king, the druid. But then the bard is sort of the other one. The bard is the is the keeper of the of the identity of their people. He tells the he sings the song of their great deeds, the song of their like shameful defeats, the song of he like he can make or break the like the the, the reputation of a warrior. You know, if one little jab from a, from a from a bard can be like the source of like ignominious you know shame for someone for their whole life. You know and. But with that, though, I think that's just the surface of it. The the thing behind it, though, is the other emphasis I think that is strong in Celtic spirituality, which is it's 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 focused on the imagination, of of being able of always being attentive to to the fact that there is more here than I am seeing, and I need to see stronger. I need to hear more strongly. I need to taste more strongly. I need to feel more strongly. There's a, an attentiveness to the senses um, that is made. Um, unsuspicious in Celtic spirituality, a multi-sensory approach to the world that understands that what I can see and taste and touch and hear is only the beginning of what is here um, with me right now. Mm. Um, And that restores us, I think, to a sane spirituality again, uh, which again resists that tendency to rip apart the world. You know, you look at a lot of—and again, it's not a surprise that in a lot of the West, imagination itself 
is often looked at as like, oh, that's gets cute, right? That, that's a cute thing kids do. Escapism. Right, it's escapism from, from the real thing. Um, there's a tendency in Western, in sort of Western, like the Western mindset, but I think even in Western theology, to utter a disastrously despairing phrase uh, that, that, that we say all the time, and, and that is the phrase like, it is what it is. Hmm. And you know that 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 is often uttered at the end of a when we when we when we're ready to cauterize our curiosity for something or we're ready to say i'm i'm done thinking about this so it, it is what it is i'm done trying to figure this out i'm done trying to plumb this thing for the depths of what it, uh, of understanding understanding is taking too long or it's too hard or too painful so i'm just going to sear it and then say this this is just what it is mm-hmm. which really just means this can only be what I now at this point deem it to be. And that is the great sort of, that is a sort of an, at some point it's a loss of imagination at that point, but ultimately that becomes a kind of nihilism for right. us. And so I think in Celtic spirituality, you see a refusal to utter, to, to say that with a period on the end and say, when we say, if we were to say it is what it is as from within that mindset, we would say um, it, it is what it is. And I only know a part of what it is. Mm-hmm. We would we would have to say like it is a thing in many dimensions of complexity, and I have only begun to experience it. Yeah, where mystery, um, properly understood, is is this is the the high ceiling of the universe, right? It's right. not. Um, it's it doesn't have to be dangerous in the way that people may uh, believe mystery to be, or it's a, or a cop out. It's a, an admission of the limitations of my present understanding, right? And the Apostle Paul, now I know in part. Um, and so there is much more to be known, as he, is, <laughs> as he says there, right? Um, one day I, I shall know even as I am known. Um, that we would be able to, at any moment, as sophisticated as our pronouncements may seem, as as advanced or as um yeah as as solid as our institutions may or may have felt that at any given moment to be open to the the smallness and the provisional nature Mm -hmm. of all our understanding um does not mean there isn't something there it means there is more there right than i can see the nervousness usually is like does that mean you you just don't believe any does that mean you just because you can't make a clear doctrine out of every mm-hmm. thought you've ever had does that right. mean that you don't think there's a world there that, that god exists because you and it's no no mm-hmm. it, it's meant to be quite the opposite right it's meant to be the humility and also the 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 enthusiasm from a humble place um, right. to, to man, there's so much more that that's, that's further right. up and further in that there's always, there's always a deeper uh, apprehension, you know, that I could be drawn into, you know, uh, thinking of Paul saying, you know, and maybe at the end of his life almost, I want to know Christ. Right. <laughs> you're like, you're yeah. like, dude, right. I think you, you know, like, don't you, it's been a couple decades. You've, Right. You're about to die for him, and I and it's just like this, this just joyful desire, curiosity, this belief that man, I barely know him. Like I've been knowing him in the best way I can with so many years and, and all these things. And and you know what I really want? I want to know him. Like, I want to know, know him. I want to fellowship with him in his sufferings. Right. I want to be drawn into the deeper places, and 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 it, that puts us to shame. But it also calls us to 
a greater imagination of what it means to know God. So often, my fellow pastor, John Hollowell, um, friend of, co-host of the podcast here, will say, um, I don't think we have any idea how little we know God. Like, as a culture, right. as a people, um, as a Christianized world, you know, or society, um, I don't think we realize how far away we are from him. That's right. And and I always hear that as like f- frightening, humbling, and then this incredible invitation to the more, um, to right. not assume, oh, I get it. You know, I have my devotional time in the morning. I go to my church service on Sunday morning. I, I, do, I do the things that I do. And it is what it is. <laughs> right. Well, no, I think that, the, you know, this, this trickles into our prayer, you know, which I think is the significant question for how it in, informs our Christianity. How is this leading me into deeper communion with Jesus and deeper communion with my brethren is, you know, it, it has that trickle down effect. When we start to look at the world this way, it can have a reflexive effect on how we do, while we approach God as well and one another. Um, you and I have talked about how our sort of view of our, our theology affects our sort of our regard for each other and vice versa, the Ike, the sort of iconography of each person. Right. Um, but I, you know, someone wisely pointed up, you know, gave me a prayer one time, uh, and that has always proven helpful in this respect, which is they, 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 they began a prayer with saying, uh, Lord, not as I know you, but as you know yourself to be. And, and I've always found that beautiful because, yeah, as someone who loves to study theology, who loves to think about things, the danger constantly is I've gotten there. Mm. I get it. Mm. it. It is what it is. And similarly, that trickles down into our relationships with one another, which is, you know, I could look at you across the room and say like, yeah, it's, that's David. I, I, I kind of, I know that guy, you know, and then, I, but then like 10 minutes later, you're already changing and, <laughs> you know, and hopefully growing. And like, that's mm-hmm. what I want for you. And so I'd have to even look at you and say, like, ah, like that's that's David, not, but he's not as I know him, but as God knows him to be, um, and and I want to know that David, mm. you know, um, and and I think that the, I think that is that is enshrined in the in that kind of Celtic Christian spirit that the whole world is like that. The world is this is is like is like that tree, not as I know it, but as God knows it to be, yeah. who knows every leaf on its branches and names every leaf on the branches, right? That, that's, that's the tree I want to know. And what that does, I think, is, the, is maybe the, 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 another great emphasis that we really need to be restored to as Western Christians is an attentiveness to the local and the, an attentiveness to place, which then plays back into your question earlier about power, yeah. um, is you'll see as a tendency in Celtic spirituality, um, I think you'll see the abandonment of any pretension that we're going to be like a global power, even like even my you know sort of brethren, the the, the historical Anglicans fell into this error at times mm. um, and exerted it against our Irish brethren um, at different times and that and to our shame. Um, but that is but there there's always a, a tendency to say like this is the place where Christ will meet us or nowhere. Mm-hmm. And and it, what it did is it resisted a, a tendency in the rest of the Christian West to unify by centralizing and to um, and to be confident in the faith only by um, acquiring the power to terrorize the enemies of the faith. Mm. And I think that in the Irish, especially the Irish Christian in Irish Christianity, you see, like we're never going to be that, you know, the, the closest we ever got was trying to push, get the Romans off our back in like the fourth <laughs> century BC. And that didn't go well. 
And then it never really happened again after that. We kind of stayed up there where, where, where it, we'd been pushed um, over centuries by the Romans. And so, you know, but I think what that does is like, all right, we have like this island will be the place where the Lord Christ will be our high king uh, and maybe and nowhere else for us. And so for us, you know, we always, I think as Christians, as Western Christians are, are we, are, we have a sort of aspirational tendency that's like always looking to the next horizon, the next horizon, the next horizon, when often, and, and very much to the, to the neglect of our local, situa- our local situation, our local community, and realizing that it has always been the case that Jesus has redeemed the whole cosmos through little tiny ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. He, he strayed no further than a little 100-mile little, little spot mm-hmm. of the earth and redeemed all the cosmos, every atom of the cosmos, from that place. It's such a beautiful encouragement at this moment in the church's life in the West, especially when we're so tempted to feel beleaguered, we're so tempted to feel like, I mean, people are clinging and fighting awkwardly and maybe horribly for power because they feel the absolute loss or irrelevancy of uh, Christianity to to everyday life for most people. Um, And generation on generation, it's dramatically the case. Uh, And so to be able to, to rest in the the nearness and the now and the here and the the smallness of what we're actually called to be and to and to the the plot of land we're given to till etc like to me that is so enlivening and that's so that's there's just so much hope um you know that this little shire right becomes um the the central place in all the world because it it is what god called it to be and it's where he placed me right and so this is where he will be lord um because that's where where we are and to be able to say that's enough um to to not strive or have the ambitions that meant to be the church or to be successful we really need to expand and we really need to to mega our way you know across the this country and then and have our brand go with our online services being seen all over the world <laughs> right like yeah. the temptation and the ability yeah. Um, to try to spread the evangel um, beyond maybe a local faithful presence mm-hmm. that is proven through time to be a legitimate witness. This is always something uh, Pastor John was called us to. Like there, there is nothing to export uh, uh, unless you have lived and seen the fruit of a ministry over decades. Yep. Right. That there, there is nothing to to spread. To say yes, like this, like us, like <laughs> like you, you, you just need to walk with the Lord. You just need to know Jesus, and you need to walk with Him in your time. And the best way, and he he would bring this down to the the closest level. You know, the best way you can be a husband for me in my context is to walk with Jesus. The yeah. best way you can be a father is to walk with Jesus. The best way you can be a colleague is to walk with Jesus. Like as soon as you want to reach out, even to roles that you have right. in the world. I say, man, I want to be great at this, or I want to be of, of help here. I want to do this. I want to help this. I want to. Um, it's like it always comes back to the only way you can be the blessing you might even want to be uh, to others is if you are focused on dealing with your issues, dealing with your heart, walking with the Lord today, here and now. Right. Um, that's our hope. That is the that is the shape of the Christian life. That is incarnational. Right. That is Jesus of Nazareth. The hope of the world, right? Um, this this person, that's right. Here, 
Um, would you say, I mean, there, there are many places we could probably do a series on this, but, um, I, I love the idea that even if we, we want to be really careful about sort of co-opting or doing the buffet selection course of, of Christian traditions, um, that we could say, we would encourage everyone to admit the voice of Celtic Christianity as a presence of, of critique and encouragement um, or maybe as an unregarded or, or often overlooked uh, genealogy of Western Christianity that may have a lot more life in it than the genealogies we've accepted because they they were the world dominant ones. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that that spread and, and colonized most of the world. Right. Um, that maybe there there is a plumb line there to a legitimate um, life giving. Um, sometimes frightening uh, expression of true Christian faith that we, in some ways, are the inheritors of, even if we had never heard of it. And mainly through their generosity. Right. I mean, the, 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 the craziest thing, I think, about Celtic spirituality, the, the Celtic saints and the Celtic Christians in general, is always like, they're, they were always getting beaten up on by everybody. By the everyone. Romans, the English, <laughs> the, you know, the Norsemen. <laughs> Then, like you know, theologically speaking, they were getting beat up by like like by by Roman Christianity. Then in the Reformation, the reformers, especially like the Reformed, the Calvinists, were always looking at it as like they're all just Pelagians up there, you know, like and just categorically writing it off. And 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 yet, constantly, constantly, uh, the like the, I like the Irish Christianity has like lended itself to the world, right? Like the same same people that got pushed to the very fringes of the world then re-entered their own, like Patrick re-entered the world of their, of the people that had harmed them grievously mm-hmm. and gave them again, uh, like a lively experience of the faith or in the case of Europe, gave them that. And then also their own civilization back, right. you know, and in the, and in America too, Irish Christianity, you know, like again, in seasons of deep desperation, you know, the diaspora of Irish Christians makes its way over to the new world. And this is some of my relatives, you know, like my great, great aunt, you know, is a, is a, is a, an Irish Catholic nun, you know, and, and, and she, you know, like, and, but so many people over the centuries have come and, and given a kind of, again, a plumb line, a kind of goal, a, a stable kind of central, uh, historical grounded, uh, suffering, resilient Christianity, in the midst of what end, would end up being a, a, a kind of a hotbed of what ended up being somewhat some heresy and some like various forms of heterodoxy, and then also just a kind of power, a kind of power focused and centralizing Christianity, either from the like the Reformation side or the Catholic side. Uh, the Irish kind of Christian like heart in, in America has been has been a great gift to us, and and has has given us a sense of continuity. Uh, with a with an ancient Christianity that would otherwise uh, have been obscured many times over mm. o- over the centuries. You know? Maybe we can close with a comment about one of those those gifts that has maybe not been seen or practiced much, but which you and I are are interested in, and that is the idea of the Anamkara, ah, um, yeah. the soul friend. Um, because to have the form of Christianity that developed in, in these centuries, in the early Middle Ages, in Ireland um, and in, in the Celtic West, um, without a lot of institutional 
superstructure um, or without a lot of, you know, sort of, yeah, extra governance or whatever the case may be. Um, it meant that, that, that the kinds of even monastic uh, communities that emerged were a little less school-like and a little more friendship-like. Yeah. And so there developed this, this idea and this practice of, of the soul friend, the Anamkara. Could you tell us maybe a little bit? I mean, I, I want to bring us home, and, and yeah. this just as an invitation to people to even think about in a time of such fragmentation, of such privately held Christianity, in which we've talked about the difficulty of, of, of all of us to receive spiritual direction of churches desperate to make connect groups and connect cards and community and this this attempt always to try to top down we all know you need community and so we're going to keep telling you about community and we're going to keep trying to create a community by telling you to join this community um what is the anamkara as uh, maybe a way a way into a, a kind of spiritual community through through that small sort of local other yeah, it begins, um, I think, with, by, again, we go back to Patrick, where we began. Um, it begins by uh, kind of looking at, looking around and saying, these are my people. These are my people. And if I'm going to follow Christ and inherit from him the life of a saint, I'm, it's going to be here with these people or nowhere and to be to sort of like the spirit of the, of that, of that kind of, of the navigate, the great navigators in the Celtic spirituality, right. Who put themselves in a boat and just said where the Lord leads, mm -hmm. I will be there. And then I will plant myself there for, for the rest of my life. Um, to be as like, as, as one of the good seed of the Lord, the sower uh, who takes good root in a place and bears much fruit there. That's the beginning of the Anamkara, the soul friend, as to say, first, these are my people. And then once we've sort of crossed that threshold, the next threshold is, uh, I think, beginning to say, like, I'm okay, um, coming back to, again, that, that idea of the undivided heart, again, which Celtic spirituality enshrines so well, the wholeness of heart that's ferocious at times and deeply mystical at others, monastic to its core, is saying, um, how do I look at you and say, how can I be an undivided soul? And how do, can I look at you as an undivided person and not try to say, I, you know, I want to like kind of get to know this part of you, but I'll you know, leave <laughs> the rest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, or I just want to present to you with this, this, my, my good side over here right. and not this other side here. The, the, the essence of the soul friend is to say, I am one person who wants to know you as one person, not as I know you, but as God knows you to be. And I'm going to commit to being here um, as long as it takes into the far reaches of eternity to see that unfold. And when we can look face to face uh, at someone and say that to them, um, that's that's when the Anamkara really becomes, becomes a real thing. That is when we say, um, I'm with you into the, centuries of the kingdom it will take for me to know you as god knows you to be the deepest and truest friendship as you say or as kierkegaard would say purity of heart is to will one thing yeah it is a love that is whole it is a love in place with 
actual people. Um, and it is a love that is imaginative. Mm. Father Hayden, Reverend Butler, whatever anybody wants to call you, I'm happy to call you an Anamkara. I like, and likewise, David. Thank you I for treasure being that. here. I, I just want to encourage everybody to consider this plumb line. Consider yeah. this tradition um, and consider it in ways that may may be deeply hopeful ways forward for many of us in the late modern, pseudo-modern West. <laughs> Amen. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon 